Hi, everybody. It's Dr. Eric Corum, founder of AIM7. Welcome back to The Blueprint, where we distill cutting-edge science, leadership, and life skills into simple tactics optimized for your busy lifestyle and goals. Today, I am honored to have Dr. Bapu Jenna, a distinguished economist, physician, and Harvard Medical School professor on the show. Dr. Jenna's distinctive blend of expertise allows them to view healthcare from a unique lens, leading to groundbreaking insights. And in our conversation, we'll dig into his latest book, Random Acts of Medicine, and explore the fascinating concept of natural experiments in healthcare. We also discuss how to cultivate creativity and innovation, the fascinating question of how does stress impact the lifespan of a president, and many other mind-blowing topics. So whether you're a healthcare professional, a patient, or just simply a curious mind, this episode promises to challenge your understanding of health, medicine, and the world around us. So let's get right to it. Let's lean in and learn from the best. Bapu, it is a pleasure to have you on The Blueprint. And while I was doing my research, by the way, your new book is phenomenal. If you don't, we're going to be promoting the snot out of this thing. (laughs) This is, if you're a deep thinker or, or a curious human being, you are going to love this book. But I was watching your TED Med talk and you said something that was very profound. You said there's a difference between seeing and looking and that there's a difference between being a casual observer and a thoughtful observer. So can we kind of pull on that thread for just a moment? Because I think this is the difference between being an average and elite and really anything that you do. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, Eric, uh, first of all, I thought you said the book was going to be great for people who have trouble sleeping at night. <laughs> maybe, maybe it'll help with that too. I don't know. But, you know, the book and the TED Med talk that you just mentioned, they sort of riff on the same theme. And and a lot of what I do is just find these interesting questions that I see in medicine and healthcare and in my own life. And one of the things I sort of reflected on over the last couple of years is that, especially in a, in a complex system, let's say it's in medicine or in sports where there's so many moving parts, we sort of just kind of do the motions, right? And we don't really like look and see what might be interesting questions that are happening all around us. And a lot of the ideas that I've had over the last 10 years or so come from things that happen right in front of me in the office, uh, seeing a patient in the hospital at home, things that would just sort of go in one ear out the other or one eye out the other, for lack of a better analogy, for most people. And I just sort of train myself to be looking for these interesting observations and try to, to answer the questions that they pose. So we can go into some more details, I'm sure, about particular ideas, but my general approach is to be really thoughtful about what I'm seeing around me, and I kind of practice it, just like an athlete might practice or a surgeon might practice. I spend a lot of time trying to cultivate that. How do you cultivate that? So I do something very simple. Think about like uh, a doctor, an engineer, or an athlete. They are trained to solve problems. So a, a doctor is trained to make a diagnosis to pick the right treatment. A surgeon is trained how to operate, to transplant a heart from one being to another. An athlete is trained how to do particular things on the field or on the court. But what we are not trained to do as much is how to, you know, we're trained to solve problems, but we're not trained to create or come up with the most interesting of problems. And I feel like that's a skill that could be taught. And think about like the, you know, major businesses, major ideas. Those came from just really creative thinkers. And my point, I think, is that I don't think that people are born creative. Some people might be, but I think it's a skill that you can be taught and you can hone. And so we spend, my, my colleagues and I, probably spend about 
two and a half to three hours every week where we just sit down and talk about new ideas. So Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we'll sit down for about an hour and I'll start off the conversation. I'll say, all right, who's got a new idea? And most of our ideas, to be honest, are not very good. And that's totally fine because all that matters is that you have one idea once in a while that is really interesting. And that's enough to do a lot with. And so that's what How we do. How do you we know have. a good idea versus a bad idea? Good question. A little bit of practice, but I have sort of a litmus test, which is, you know, if I could, if I could walk down the street and talk to someone totally random and say, what do you think about this? If they would be interested in that question and understand that question, for me, for the type of work that I do, that's an interesting idea. Now, of course, if you're developing this new cancer technology and you went to talk to somebody on the street about like how it works and all that stuff, it might it'd be over my head, it'd be over most people's heads. The work that I do, is, as you know, is much more approachable to people and the questions are in that same vein. So I'm kind of always thinking, if this is something that I could talk to a total stranger about who's not at all in my field, would they get it and would they want to know more? And if so, that's a good starting point for me. Interesting. How did you get into this? I mean, who gets the job to ask great questions? I got lucky, I'll be honest. You know, I, my background is in medicine and in economics. And I knew I always wanted to, to be a doctor. My mom was a doctor and I I really appreciated um, what she did for people and, and, and that meant a lot to me growing up. So I wanted to always do that. But my dad was also a researcher. He spent his life, he continues to spend his life asking questions that are interesting to him. So I had a little bit of that bug as well. And I wanted to try to find a way to combine it. So uh, I studied medicine. And then I did something that is a little bit atypical for people who go into medicine is I, I uh, studied economics. I did a PhD in economics in Chicago. So I was there for school for about eight years. And um, I had some really good advisors. One of them was a, a guy named Steve Levitt, who was a co-author of the book Freakonomics. Mm-hmm. And it was really influential to me and to a lot of people. A lot of the work that I do right now is very much of the mold of Freakonomics meets medicine. That's how it's probably best described. And so series of sort of fortunate meetings with people that left good impressions. And I had an interest and an appetite for it. You're very humble. I, uh, I appreciate the humility. <laughs> That's a lot of work. MD, PhD is not easy. I did the PhD. I can't imagine doing the MD too. Like, <laughs> wow. Speaking of good questions and thinking in a different way, in your book, you describe natural experiments. I thought this was fascinating. Can you talk about what a natural experiment is? Yeah, absolutely. So think about when you go to a a doctor and they prescribe you a medication. Usually there's some evidence behind why they're doing what they're doing. And ideally, that level of evidence would be from a clinical trial, where at some point in time, people who had the condition that you have that you're getting treated for were randomized to get the drug that you're being prescribed or some other drug. And then the people who are doing that clinical trial studied the results and said, all right, well, this group was randomized to one treatment. This group was randomized to another treatment. Therefore, we can figure out which of these treatments is better. And that's the basis for a lot of clinical decisions, not all. And that is very different than, of course, saying, let's look in the real world at people who use one treatment versus another and trying to infer something about whether or not that treatment works. And the problem is because in the real world, there's a reason people take certain treatments or do certain things. And if those reasons are not random, then you don't know if you're picking up the effect of that treatment or you're picking up the effect of that person. And and this is, Eric, probably nowhere 
less important than think about like nutrition and behavior. Look at people who exercise a lot and don't exercise a lot. It wouldn't surprise us to think that if you exercise a lot, you have better health outcomes. But how do we really know that comes from exercise? Because the people who can exercise more are different than the people who can't. And maybe that's why they live longer. Mm. Now, I think you would agree and I would agree. I think that exercise does matter, but it would be hard to, you know, really conclude that from just comparing people who exercise versus don't. And that's why randomized trials come into place. What are natural experiments? Well, what they are is a way to try to figure out if there are ways in which nature randomizes us in a way that an investigator running a trial would randomize us. So in the case of, uh, let's say exercise, suppose you wanted to figure out if running a marathon is good for your health. Mm -hmm. You could do that in two ways. One, look at people who run marathons and people who don't. And guess what? I think people who run marathons live longer. Mm -hmm. But how do we know it's because of the marathon? The way to figure out that problem using a natural experiment would say, all right, can we think of a scenario where people who were similarly fit, some people by chance, let's say, ran a marathon and other people didn't, then at least you could figure out the short-term effect of running a marathon. So a few years ago, Hurricane Sandy canceled a marathon, I think it was in New York. And so you had a bunch of people who were supposed to run the marathon, but for some totally random reason, a hurricane, they didn't. Now, what happens if you looked at the mortality rate of those people 30 or 60 days later to see how their mortality might compare to people who were able to run a marathon that year? And I say that because there's actually some evidence that running a marathon has short-term negative effects on your heart. Not a surprise because it's super intense. Yeah, it's an extreme stress. Extreme extreme stress activity. So that's what a natural experiment is. It's a way in which we look at nature to find situations where we are exposed to things by chance. If you're a busy person looking for actionable tips to help you look, feel, and perform better, then check out my newsletter, Adaptation. Every Friday, I send this newsletter to over a thousand busy people just like you who are looking to improve their health and wellness, but don't have time for a crazy download of information. My newsletter, Adaptation, is short and to the point, and I provide you with actionable recommendations curated from the latest scientific literature, along with decision-making frameworks to help you lead yourself better. If you're interested, sign up now. The link is in the show notes. Can you talk about the presidents versus runners-up? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, so we're, we're about to enter a presidential election not too long from now. And uh, with some people who are on the older side, you know, I'm not trying to be ageist, but they're, they're on the older side of things. And uh, one question that people have asked is whether or not being president or being a world leader accelerates your aging. Why might that be? Well, it's, it's a really stressful job, right? The, it's stressful. It's busy. You probably don't have much time to take care of yourself, your health, you know, diet and exercise, all that stuff. And so it wouldn't be surprising to think that presidents might accelerate in, in their aging. Um, and you look at photos of Obama and Clinton, they grayed a lot. Uh, their hairs uh, became very gray. Bush too. Yeah, Bush too. Yeah, everybody. No, no, one is, uh, no one is immune to it. And the problem though is if you look at world leaders and you compare them to the general population guess what? World leaders live longer lives. So you could not conclude that being a world leader extends your life just based on that comparison because they're different from the general population in so many ways. So the question is, is there a natural experiment 
that you can use to answer that question? And what we showed is the, you know, we think yes. So you look at people who are running uh, in an election, one person wins by chance almost, and one person loses. Like, I mean, in this country, it's like 50-50 almost. So it is really kind of flip of a coin. The person who wins and the person who loses, the person who wins is exposed to the stresses of being a leader of the world, the leader of our country, sorry. And the person who loses is not. And what do you see? What you see is that winners of elections, national elections, they have about a two and a half year shorter life than runners up in those same elections who did not win. And so it does you know, suggest that being a world leader might shave some years off your life because of the stress that we just talked about. Yeah. And both of these folks get amazing health care. Typically, they're wealthy when they're done because of speaking or whatever, you know, all these things that would, you would think would compound stress, no money, poor healthcare, you know, bad living situations, all these other factors are kind of controlled for, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of a level playing field. I thought that that was absolutely fascinating. And here you are, it's like you and your team are able to look at the world in a different way. And that, that is like the biggest thing that I got out of this book was like, there are some people that just go through life and the world just kind of passes them by. And they're curious, but eh. And then there's another filter. There's another way of viewing things. And that's what creates like, that's where innovation is born from. That is where the breakthroughs come from. And as I've been going through your book and, and learning more about you, I want to foster this ability. And so you've heard of David Ogilvy? No, no. Who is that? One of the greatest advertisers in the history of advertising, Warren Buffett spoke of him a lot and said he was a genius. Ogilvy was very proud of himself and said he was a genius himself. I highly recommend reading his autobiography. His works are amazing. But one of the things that he said, this has really got my attention recently as a founder and somebody that's, that's job is to innovate, is that he would create space for this. You know, he lived in the early 1900s up to, I think, 1970s. He wasn't out on the golf course. He was, you know, in nature. He was thinking. He was writing. He was creating opportunities for his brain to rest. And today we live in this overstimulated world and we consume, consume, consume. And I wonder how that's impacting our ability to create, discern, and think on another level. What are your thoughts on that? I totally agree. So, you know, he created space in one way. We create space in a different way. The creation that we do is, um, it's somewhat prescribed, right? So it's like, I don't go on walks and just think, which might be helpful for a lot of different reasons. But what we do is we sit down and say, all right, let's think, but let's not think about how to solve a problem. Because that's what 95% of what we do is. We, we are posed a problem whether it be a business problem, a life problem, clinical problem, whatever it is. We're posed a problem, and then we put our heads together to try to solve it. But what we don't spend a lot of doing time doing is just sitting down and trying to conceive of the most interesting of problems. So we create that space, my, my colleagues and I, we create that space to do that, but it does mean that we spend less time doing other things um, as a result. So I think that there is a trade-off, but for me, I, I feel like it's it's worth it because the same way that we practice everything else in life, we try to practice coming up with ideas. And sometimes we come up with interesting ideas in these sort of idea sessions. That does happen. But what I think it really does is it just makes you more attuned to things that you see 
when you are just living your life. You you pick up on things that you otherwise wouldn't because you've sort of been training yourself to be in that mode. If you really want to make an impact, one great idea can define a lifetime. Yeah. I mean, really, truly, that that like generative AI or, you know, where we are with large language models now, the idea has been around for a long time. Somebody figured out a way to bring it to the general public. You know, ChatGPT is the fastest growing product in the history of any product. Got to 100 million users in a month. Wow. Like Facebook pales in comparison. It's wild. And look what the create, it's unlocked a whole nother level of creativity. So, I, you know, when I think about how do we, we're innovating in the um, health and wellness space, leveraging wearable data and driving actionable recommendations for general folks, you know, for average folks that aren't like the athletes I worked in an elite sport where we could have this team of people around them. Yeah. Um, and so we're always thinking about how do we deliver these solutions in a way that meets people where they are to change health outcomes. Thanks again for listening to the Blueprint Podcast. And if you've gained new insights or understanding from our world-class guests, please support the show by leaving a comment and review on whichever listening platform you are joining us from. This is your way of helping promote the show and empowering us to reach more folks. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you.